Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. I've kind of been looking through and preparing for this. I've realized that I'm going to have to change. We don't have enough time to go through the whole book of Hebrews. So we're either going to skip chunks and look at themes, or we're going to do part of Hebrews now and part of Hebrews later. We'll see where it goes. Um, Kind of just reading through the text and and seeing where the Holy Spirit jumps off the page and speaks to me, and I hopefully will speak to you. So today we're we're in chapter, we're starting chapter three. Um, I've learned a lot over the several years of of being married and also being a Christian have matured a lot. One of the things that has changed in me is, especially early on, I I don't like conflict, and so I'm pretty a pretty go-with-the-flow person. So there would be times in my marriage where Lauren would say something or do something that would bother me, and I would just bury it, right? I just wouldn't talk about it. I wouldn't talk to her about it. I would just bury it. And things were smooth sailing until they weren't. Right, and there comes a point where the even though I haven't talked about it out loud, and I think I've dealt with it and moved on, I haven't, and that bitterness would kind of make its way to the surface and cause conflict in our marriage. So part of being married is it's a way that the Lord sanctifies us and matures us and grows us, and also as being a Christian. So one of the things that I've learned is that I can't do that over long periods of time, ten years of being married. I've learned that when something frustrates me, even if it shouldn't. I can voice my opinion to my wife and trust that she will hear me and correct me if I'm wrong or we have a conversation about it and we're better off for it. So one day we're talking, so, so I've changed, all right? And so now I'm not as go with the flow as I used to be, but I still have this kind of identity about myself that I think about like, I'm a pretty go with the flow person. I'm not really type A in everything, but there are some things that I am type A in. And so Lauren and I are having a conversation and I make this passing comment about how I'm I'm a go with the flow person and she chuckles. (laughs) And I was offended. (laughs) Like, what are you, what are you laughing at? And and this, this is where it kind of came from. She's like, well, you used to be a go with the flow person, but you've changed. And, and what she was getting at was true. Like I'm still pretty go with the flow, but there are certain times where my opinion matters and I need to voice that opinion. And I voice that opinion. Now I've learned to be vocal about some of the things that bother me. And so from her perspective, I'm not as go with the flow as I used to be. But when she laughed, 
it cut me deep because I had this identity about myself, this view of myself, that I was this type of person, and she was challenging that identity, right? And so that's kind of what we're getting into in, in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is looking at the people reading this letter, and they have this identity about themselves. They are temple worshipers. They are Jews. They follow the, the Old Testament law and the prophets, and but they've been converted. They've heard the testimony of Jesus. They've surrendered their life to Jesus. And this has challenged and changed their identity. And they're being tempted to go back into that. And the writer is wanting to challenge that identity. And that can be painful. It can be frustrating when our identity is challenged. So with that kind of in the back of our minds and knowing what's happening, I want to jump into today's text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. So this is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle, our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and the hope which we have in glory. So remember, they have this identity that has been challenged. And the writer is saying, as, the, as you're being persecuted, as you're being tempted to go back into your old way of life, back into your old identity, I want you to remember that you can be tempted to drift away from your faith in Jesus. That's what we looked at last week. And so in that temptation to drift, their, their greatest obstacles are that, that persecution that's happening. Their greatest obstacles are that, and it's also their pre-Jesus identity. For them, they were Jewish, temple, temple worshipers, the Old Testament the, that said that the the Lord spoke to the prophets and fathers of old, right? It's, it's all kind of talked about this law, the law that was given by the angels to Moses and then brought from Moses to them. They kind of have their identity wrapped up in that law. The law was their, their precious way of life. It's how they knew who they were. It's how they knew who God was. It's how they knew how they were supposed to act, how they were supposed to behave. It's how, it was everything about who they were was wrapped up in this Old Testament law. It was their way of knowing their creator and their way of knowing themselves. But now they have a new word and that is Jesus. And that changes the way they're supposed to look and act. For them, their temptation was to go back to the way that was spoken by the angels and Moses. So we saw in week one that we saw that Jesus is greater than the angels We saw in week two, therefore pay closer attention to the message of Jesus that you don't drift away. And now the writer is addressing the next issue. Jesus is greater than Moses. He makes this bold claim once again in verse three that Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Then he goes into a lot of this talk about houses, right? And it can kind of be easy to get lost in the translation there. It says that just as a builder of a house is greater, has greater honor than the house itself, it's easy for us, or at least for me, to kind of be like, huh? 
Because if I'm honest, I don't care about the builder of my house. Like, let's just be real. I, I love my house. If something were to happen in my house, I wouldn't have anywhere to live. If something breaks in my house, I either try to fix it on my own or I get the money to have it fixed by someone else because if something's wrong with my house, I need it, and I care about it, and I want to take care of it. You know, you change the air filters in the house. You, you make sure you keep the house clean, kind of. Okay, you do things to take care of the house. You spray it for bugs so that the termites don't get... We, I care for my house. Now, if I were to so, happen to meet the person that built my house, say at Kroger, and they had just broken their arm, stinks for them. That's a them problem, right? Like, I'm not going to pay that they get their arm fixed. I... I, I I'll pay for my house to get fixed, but not the builder. We can, we can get lost in this translation of the, the, house be, the, the builder of the house being greater than the house, and the, it calls Moses as the servant. Jesus is over the house, but then at the end, it, we become the house, and it can kind of be, get confused and get wrapped up in there. So what I want to say is, is what, what's happening here is the writer is taking something that speaks to his audience, and he's saying that Moses is important to you, just like angels are important to you. And those things have value, just like a house has value for you. But they're not as important as Jesus. The law is important, but not as important as Jesus. When he realizes, the writer realizes that he is coming at their old identity. And he realizes that that can be painful and frustrating. What he wants to, what they want to make sure happens. I keep saying he, but we don't know who the writer is. Okay, what they want to make sure happens is that the hearer of this letter knows that Moses was important and knows that angels are important. They're just important in the way that they bear witness to Jesus, as we saw in verse four. There's this contrast when the writer talks about angels and Moses. It's talking about the law. It's talking about their obedience and the way they live. And then, then it's comparing it, this contrast, to Jesus. So this, the, for the early Christians reading this, the temptation was twofold. One temptation was to hold the law too high and therefore make Jesus just like another Moses, bringing great insight into what the law had to say. But that neglects the Jesus as a savior. The second temptation was the opposite, was to throw the law out with the bathwater. So that, that making, making it that there with Jesus, therefore nothing else matters. No, the, what Moses says doesn't matter. What the law says doesn't matter. There's nothing good to say about Israel, etc., etc. So what, what's happening is the writer is saying, the law matters, but so does Jesus. And there's this contrast, and you can't be tempted to throw one out and keep the other. They both matter. And here's why this is important for us. Because we have a tendency to do the same. For us, it may not be the law, but it is our religious practices. It is our holiness. It is our religion that we can end up elevating and neglecting Jesus, or we can elevate Jesus and think our behavior doesn't matter. We can have that same temptation. We have this tendency to create a rivalry between Jesus and the law. 
right? And any, any sports fans in here? I know I am. I talked to some of you guys about it, right? Some of you have the unfortunate experience of being a UGA fan. I'm just kidding. That's a great experience. I'm jealous, okay? I am a Georgia Tech fan. And so there's this great rivalry, right? It's called the good old-fashioned hate, all right? And I know it's not proper to hate, but I was born that way. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so there's this tendency as a Georgia Tech fan, we don't experience anything good when it comes to college football, all right? The last time we won a championship was the year I was born. (laughs) Now, for a UGA fan, they're living the high life, okay? They're probably going to win their third national championship in a row if I had to guess, all right, if I was a betting man. And so as, as a rivalry, all right, this is a sports rivalry. It's a big rivalry. For me, I am a diehard Georgia Tech fan, and I'm also a diehard fan of whoever is playing UGA, okay? I want UGA to lose every game. It's just how it is. And so I create this rivalry in my mind, right, where I want Tech to win, and I want UGA to fall off the map. <laughs> and there's this tendency as Christians to look at Jesus and the law, and we might not say those things out loud, but in our heart, we get there. We create a rivalry between Jesus and obedience, between Jesus and religion, between Jesus and the law. In our mind, the law carries this warning, but Jesus carries grace. The law is threatening, but the gospel is soothing. The law is convicting, but the gospel is comforting. The law hurts, but Jesus heals. The law shows us how bad we are, but Jesus shows us how forgiven we are. The law represents rules to follow, while Jesus represents grace for when we fall short. And there are some truths in some of those statements. But when we get in that situation, we are tempted to become so team Jesus that we neglect scripture and holiness. N.T. Wright says it like this. Modern Western Christians have often seen this contrast in terms of the law as threatening and the gospel of Jesus as comforting, soothing, and a healing thing. And there's much truth in that, but we forget the other side of it. When we forget the other side, we make the gospel a mere cozy blanket instead of the bracing, challenging, life-changing thing that it really is. I want to read that last part again. We make the gospel a mere cozy blanket instead of the bracing, challenging, life-changing thing that it is. The gospel is not a cozy blanket. Now listen, when you are weary, there is rest in Christ. When you are hurt, there is healing in Jesus. When you are broken, there is comfort in the arms of your Savior. But the gospel is not a cozy blanket allowing us to just sit comfortably in our sin. Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus has forgiven us, but he doesn't just forgive us. He calls us into a holy obedience that rids sin of its power over us. It gives us the ability in his grace to walk in that calling that has been given to us. His forgiveness is a nature altering forgiveness. We saw it in verse one that we see that uh, the, the therefore those who are called by this heavenly calling, it's a call to a greater living. It's a call to obedience. The gospel is not a cozy blanket. It's more like an angel army. We are going into battle, but we are not going into battle alone. 
We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against evil and darkness, against the dark powers of another realm. And that can be an incredibly sobering thought. The accuser and his armies are doing everything they can to get us to drift, get us to neglect our confession of faith. But we can take rest and comfort in knowing that we do not battle alone. We are going into battle against the enemy who is already defeated. We are going into battle that is and being led by a victorious King Jesus. We do not battle alone, but we battle while being filled with his spirit along his angel armies. And we can find rest and comfort knowing that we are surrounded by him and his armies. And we are filled with his presence. So it's a comfort and a rest like a soldier who has a confidence and those that keep watch. But it's not a rest like a cozy blanket. We can pit Jesus against the law and create a situation where we neglect holiness and obedience. But we can't have that rivalry happen because we are called to live a holy life. It can cause us, when we make that rivalry happen, it can cause us to excuse our sin instead of embracing the life-altering reality of the gospel. So we can't pit those two together because it can cause us to walk away from holiness. But just like the reader's temptation is twofold, so is ours because we can go to the other side. We can pit Jesus versus the law and in, in that sense make the weight of salvation fall on our holy behavior, fall on our actions versus falling on Jesus. We wouldn't say this out loud but we, we know we are saved through faith and we would say that's the truth. But so often we say, you know what? I'm really just saved by my behavior. We can so easily fall into the trap of letting good behavior or merit determine the view, the, the view of ourselves. I hear it all the time, especially at funerals, right? So-and-so was a good person, so they're in a better place now. Being a good person doesn't get you eternal life. That is elevating law, a.k.a. behavior, above Jesus. It has nothing to do with faith and everything to do with behavior. You've been, I've been good, therefore I'm getting into heaven. That is not taught in Scripture. You cannot earn your way into eternal life. It's not based on behavior. If you look at the last verse of our text, we see this kind of if-then statement saying that we are the house if, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope which we glory. It's the, the thing that we hold on to is not our behavior, but the person of Jesus. It's our confidence in him. It's our hope in his glory. That's how we enter into salvation. That's how we are saved. It has nothing to do with our behavior. Being a good person will not earn you eternal life. Even if, you, even if you live your entire life without sinning, which we all know is not possible, that still is not good enough because in your humanity, your nature from the beginning is sinful. It's been passed down from generation to generation. You can blame your parents, okay? Because we are human, our, sinful, our nature is sinful. And without Christ, that is never redeemed. Without Christ, that is never healed. But in him, we are saved, not in our own actions. 
And we can see this if we go back to chapter 2, which we missed. This is pretty cool. If you, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, it starts with a therefore, right? So verse 1 says, therefore. So we know that something happened at the end of 2 that takes us into today's text. So if I want to go back and I want to read Hebrews 2, 11, 14 through 17. 11 and then 14 through 17. It says this, both the one who makes people holy and those who are holy and are in the same family. So the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus. And those who are made holy, that's Christians, are in the same family. <coughs> so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Verse 14 says that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have held, been held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. Remember week one, angels aren't redeemed, but humans are. We are Abraham's descendants and we are helped by Jesus. For this reason, he had to be made like them. He had to be made like Abraham's descendants, like humans. He was fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And we'll go into that high priest thing later, but, but Jesus stands in the gap. He stands in the gap to pay the price for us. He it, it has this illustration of Jesus being a sibling to believers, right? If you've placed your faith in Christ, you become a sibling to Christ, a co-heir in the kingdom of heaven. And the reason this is significant is because we have that sinful nature being a human. So God came down and became a human without the sinful nature. He became perfect and died paying the price for our sins. I can remember being a uh, little kid. I say little. I was probably in my teenage years. And my... Uh, Mom and stepdad had this DVD that kind of flo- the DVDs kind of stayed in my room and it kind of floated around and it had this guy on the front fly fishing. And so one day I was like, I kind of want to watch this. And so I put it in. The name of this movie was A River Runs Through It. Um, it, it was extremely boring the first time I watched it. I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be about. I ended up watching it later in life and it kind of had a different ring to it. If you've seen the movie, it's about two brothers, all right, and they kind of they're growing up in this beautiful Montana countryside and. The first, the older brother, he was kind of quiet and studious, hardworking. He ended up getting a good job and became a, like a respected man in the community. But his wild younger brother was the opposite, right? He was great fun, but he was always getting into trouble. He was always kind of pushing the boundaries, pushing the envelope. He ended up associating with some people who led him deeper and deeper into trouble and was finally killed in a brawl. His older brother couldn't help him. They had grown too far apart. And you kind of get the tragedy of this story because the older brother loved his younger brother and he wanted so desperately to help him. But the most tragic part of this is he could not help him. There was nothing he could do. His younger brother was out of reach. He couldn't reach him. He couldn't go to where he was at. He could not rescue him. The point of this passage in chapter two is this. Jesus is the older brother of a much larger family. But unlike the brother from a river runs through it, Jesus could 
And he did come to where the siblings were. He wallowed in the land of the sin and death. He identified with them. He shared their fate and therefore rescued them. Jesus is the kind of older brother who, without looking down on us, comes to find us where we are and out of sheer love and goodness of heart is there to help us out of our mess. He he helps us out of the mess we find ourselves in. Jesus is the one that saves you. You cannot save yourself. It is not good behavior. Jesus has already fought the battle. Jesus has already defeated the enemy. Jesus has already paid the price. He has shared in our humanity that so that by his death, he might break the power of the one who holds the power of death. The law is important and holiness is important, but you cannot achieve salvation on your own. It is only through Christ. So when we read this text and we see that they've pit, we can't pit the law versus Jesus, we must know that we cannot, if we end up doing that in our own hearts, we fall into one of two traps. You become legalistic and you base your whole salvation and your whole worldview based on your own behavior, or you become lawless and you think, oh, I'm saved and forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Neither one is healthy. We have to have a healthy view of holiness, and the mark of, that is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. But it is not the holiness that saves. It is Jesus that saves. The law, our behavior, Scripture, it all points, it all bears witness to Jesus. So that brings us back to the first illustration. Your identity cannot be in how good of a person you are. Your identity cannot be in how you you are. Your identity must be in Christ as a co-heir, as a sibling to the Messiah, as a child to the King. Your uniqueness, the you part of you, is vitally important. And your goodness, your behavior, is vitally important, but only when it is in the right place. One New Testament scholar says this, if I can find the quote in here. Moses matters, says the book of Hebrews, but Jesus matters even more. Moses was a true servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God. You don't diminish Moses by making Jesus superior to him. You give him his rightful place, which is a place of honor, even though it is not the supreme honor. Your holiness and your obedience matter, and you honor that when you put it in the right place. Jesus has to be the ultimate. He is where we find our salvation. He is where we find the power to be holy. We cannot behave enough on our own. It's only when he enters into our heart and transforms us from the inside out. That's when we become holy. It starts and ends with Jesus. And we have to make sure that that is the key point. And from there, our actions vitally matter. When you look at your life, do you put too much weight on your obedience Or do you put too much weight on grace? The truth is you can't put too much weight on grace because Jesus paid it all. And it's through that that we are able to live holy lives. We look at how we've been forgiven even though we've fallen short. And that motivates us and gives us the power to live holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave it all. We thank you that we can live holy, but it starts and ends with you. We could be so tempted to put things above you, but I pray that you would be our ultimate thing. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.